you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And as you turn there, I, I have a question for you. Have you ever observed, either in someone else's life or maybe even your own, times where there was a disconnect between what someone has accepted as true and yet the difficulty in applying that thing as true? That there's some disconnect, they, they've, they've come to the realization, they've, they've accepted this is true, and yet when you look at their life, it, it's not necessarily apparent that they've applied what they believe. They believe it, but they have trouble living it. I was trying to think of different ways to, to illustrate this, this issue that we have, this division between these two things, this disconnect between accepting something and applying it. And, and the best illustration I came up with it was, is a little more on the, it's on the dismal or darker side, but, but it, it fits in trying to understand this disconnect because it's what we often see happen when someone is dealing with death. When someone dies, and, and you might, and I think all of us have interacted with this in some regard, um, it might not be that you've had someone very close to you die. You're still young, your parents, your grandparents are still alive, um, you have all of your siblings, but maybe, maybe it was a pet. Or, or, or maybe you have had someone very significant in your life that you've had to walk through that process of death. And one of the first things that happens when, when the reality of death when we are confronted with that, is the need to accept it. It is to see that this is true. And we have all of these things that happen around us that elevate that the truth of that thing happening. You have a funeral. You have all of these cards and letters that are being written to you. You have all of these things that you have to go through in order to plan this event all of these things pointing to the reality of death and probably the most significant thing that points is that all of this is about one person and the person that is notably absent from all of this is the one who died. Now in that moment, I think if someone were to ask you, have you accepted the reality of their death? And I don't mean accept it in the sense of have you come to terms with it, but I mean do you believe it happened? Is it true? I think all, in most of these circumstances, we would say, of course. Are you going to the funeral or are you going to say, I, I don't think so. I think it's a conspiracy. I don't think they're really dead. No, there's a body. But here's one of the fascinating things that happens is that we have all of this evidence of, of something that is true. We, we've, we've accepted it. And yet, how often do we see the days going forward and where the application of that truth is hard for us to come to terms with. You find yourself doing things you shouldn't be doing anymore because it's not the same reality. You're cooking a meal and you make too much food. You put too many table, you put too many chairs around the table. Your plans of, oh, well, this was going to happen here, and then, and all of these things, and it can take, it's not days, it's not weeks, it's often years where the realization, the application of something you've already accepted, I know this is true, but that application takes a long time. But here's the reality 
A truth that is accepted is meant to be a truth that transforms. See, see the truth that this person died is meant to have some type of transformation in what you're doing. If we were to just do exactly everything the same, we have all of the funeral, we have all of these things that we come to terms, we accept that this is true, and yet right after that, everything from then on, we do nothing different. Everything is exactly the same. There would be an element where we would ask, wait a second, did you really accept this? Did did you really believe that this happened? Because if you did, then obviously it should lead to transformation. The accepting of truth is meant to lead to the application of truth. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now here's some good news for us. The message is not about death or grief. That was just the best example that I could come up with to to show how often we have a disconnect between these two things. How often we can claim that we have accepted something and yet we still struggle to apply that thing. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to proclaim truth. It is one of the richest, most Christ-centered passages in all of Scripture. Everything is about who Jesus is, what position he holds, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. It's all about Jesus. It's all truth. We already heard the passage read earlier in our service, but, but let's just read it again so that our mind is, is enveloped and put in the right framework of what Paul is saying. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And all of this is this he, all of these pronouns are talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What an incredible, truth-filled proclamation regarding who Jesus is. It's a beautiful, magnificent, Christ-centered proclamation. But here's a strange and important question. What's it doing here? Why is it here? If you're reading through Colossians, when we did our overview message, we we were reading through, and all of a sudden you get from verse 14, and all of a sudden you're you're reading, and the flow's going, and you kind of see what Paul's developing, and all of a sudden it just feels like a right turn, and it's like, oh wait, now let's talk all about Jesus. There's almost a sense that if you went from verse 14 and skipped to verse 21, the flow almost seems more natural. Just listen to it. 
He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jumping forward. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the, his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those flow really well together. If you're reading through, there, there's a sense in which the ideas that Paul has right before the passage and the ideas right after our passage seem to work together. And then you just almost shoehorn this, this element of, all right, let's just pause. I just want to talk about Jesus for a little bit. Maybe there was a mistake. Maybe this was actually a page from that letter to the Laodiceans that were missing and we don't have that. Maybe when, when they were taking the letter that one page got slipped in the middle here and that's why we have this. Maybe it's part of that letter. Obviously, I'm kidding. There is a reason why these verses are here, but it's not always readily apparent of what function, how Paul is trying to use this unless we see the context. Unless we make the connection of what Paul is trying to accomplish. See, this, this element of what, what's the question that Paul seems to be answering? Who's Jesus? I hope... It hasn't been that long. Some of you are new and weren't here, but we just finished a series in the Gospel of John. And what was the big question that John was answering in, in his Gospel? Who is Jesus? Some of you remember. That's good. It was only a year and a half that we were in it. Who is Jesus? Now, when John asks that question, and he answers that question, and he walks us through, he has a very specific purpose. And he tells us at the end of his book, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What was John's goal? Believe. Accept the truth that's been revealed. What was the result if someone accepted the truth? They would have life in his name. And so we come to our passage, and there's an element where we feel very comfortable. We could take our passage out, put it in the middle of John, and it would just fit. And so we could say, well, if, if John's goal was that we would see the truth of Jesus and therefore accept that truth, believe the truth, that must be Paul's goal. But we would be wrong in assuming that. Here's why. Is Paul writing to unbelievers? No. John was. John was writing to those who did not know Christ. But he's not, that's not the case when we come to Colossians. In Colossians, it says right at the beginning in verse, uh, verse 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Paul is writing to believers. So what would we assume that these Colossians already know the answer to? Who is Jesus? How can they be saints and faithful brothers in Christ if they don't already know who Christ is? Well, they do know who Christ is. But, but Paul's goal here is not that they would accept the truth. Paul's goal is that they would apply the truth. His concern is not with acceptance because they've already done that. His concern is with application. When we look at the, the whole picture of Colossians, what we've talked about, the formula for Colossians is just Jesus. That's a big claim. What he's called us to, he's told us so that we are called, that we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Why? 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's a big request. That's a big deal to, to, to define, have everything in my life, the definition of success, my purpose, all to be according to who Christ is. That everything I do needs to be geared towards walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And yet, that's what Paul's saying. Later in the rest of the book, he's going to reaffirm that call to walk worthy in the, uh, of the Lord. He's going to call us and say, I'm striving, I'm toiling to present everyone mature in Christ. He's also going to give examples. If you have died in Christ, set your mind on the things above. This is what walking worthy looks like. He's also going to warn us. He's going to say, listen, if you've accepted the truth of Jesus, here's my concern that instead of applying the formula of Jesus, you're going to look at other things. You're going to apply different formulas. And the formulas that we see in chapter 2 are either less than Jesus or more than Jesus. But they're going to lead to failure. But all of the foundation where all of these things come back together is the truth of Jesus. The reason that Paul has this pause in which he says, wait, before we go on, before we talk about walking worthy, we need to be reminded of the truth. This is the foundation. We need to know the identity of Christ. We need to know the position of Christ. We need to understand the work of Christ. All of these things, who Christ is, That is the the truth that is our foundation. That is the place that everything comes back to. And so what we see is that the reason this is here, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't something where Paul was just like, ah, you know what? I just, I talked about Jesus a little bit in chapter four, in verse 14. Let me, let me just talk about Jesus more because I like it. No, this has a purpose. Now in our passage, we're not going to have any imperatives. There's no commands for us to do. Those are coming. And all of those things find their foundation in the truth of who Christ is. Here's our big idea. The acceptance, the accepted truth of Christ must be applied if we are to be transformed. This progression of truth in our lives is not just something where we are saved because we accept the truth. The progression of truth must also lead to us being sanctified because we've applied the truth. Let's look at the first section, verses 15 and 17. We're going to divide our passage into two sections. The first one looking at Christ's position over creation. In the first part of our passage, Paul proclaims Christ's identity. He says this, He is the image of the invisible God. Now, this isn't the way we are used to talking, but what, what is Paul saying about Christ's identity? What is he saying that, who is he saying that Christ is? God. In saying that he is the image of the invisible God, he is saying that Jesus is himself God. He is the invisible made visible. This is a point made very clear throughout Scripture. Christ is God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word took on 
flesh. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's revealed him. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the image of God. Now, now understand, we were created in the image of God, but we are not the exact image of God. We are not the exact imprint of his nature. What Paul is saying here is that Christ is God. The invisible God has now been made visible. This is the truth that we have accepted. The whole book of John was giving evidence to that truth. Who is Jesus? He's God. We've accepted the truth, but have we applied it? How do we do that? It means we don't turn away to other gods. We don't apply other solutions. See, everything falls apart if Christ is less than God. If Christ is just some guy, even a good guy, but just a guy, why wouldn't we seek other solutions? Why wouldn't we apply other formulas? We would be foolish not to. If Jesus is just someone who who looks like God, that's not enough of a, a foundation. That's not giving me confidence to the, trust the formula of just Jesus. But the reason that I can apply the formula of just Jesus is because just Jesus is enough. He's God. This leads to Paul's next, into his next proclamation, which is this. It's Christ's position. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, this isn't a phrase that we, we use um, often, and we especially don't use it in the same way uh, that Paul is using it. Usually when we talk about firstborn, it's just an element of chronology. He's the firstborn, so if I were to ask you, uh, everyone who's a firstborn here, if you could raise your hand, if I were to do that, we would all do it based off of chronology. I'm not a firstborn. But that's not what what Paul is, is talking about here. We see Scripture use the firstborn in that category at times, but the other way that firstborn is used is an element of position. It's an element of importance. It's that you are the heir. You are the first among many. You are the most important. You are sovereign. Again, this is what the beginning of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the heir. He's the firstborn. What this is not saying is that he is the first creation. That's going to become really clear as we get to verse 16, but Paul is not saying, oh, he's God, but he's a created God. He's someone that I made. He was the first thing that I made. No, What he's saying is that he is above all creation. He is the firstborn. Psalm 89, 27 gives us a, a, is a demonstration of this term being used in that way. Because in Psalm 89, we see a description of King David which says this, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, if you're familiar with some of these stories, was David the firstborn? No, that's a big part of the story because Samuel comes and looks at all of these other brothers and David's not even around. He's not important at all. He's still in the fields. Jesse, his dad, didn't even think about bringing him to have him looked at because he's way at the bottom of the list. And yet what God says is, I will make him the firstborn. It's a term of position. Christ is over everything. All of creation is under him. Christ's position is that he is the firstborn of creation over everything. He is the heir. It all belongs to him. How do we apply that truth? Submission. We we can accept the truth that he's God. We can say, no, I, I believe that that's true. But if that doesn't look like also applying that truth... We're missing something. We haven't understood the full implications of what we've claimed to believe. So now these, these are big truths. These are a, this is a lofty position that Christ is claiming. But what he has done and is doing in creation supports the position he claims. Look at Christ's work in verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. It says for, or we could say because, so this is linked to the position that, that Paul has said, Christ has, that he is, for, he is firstborn. Why? Well, because all things were created by him. I want you to notice two ways in which Paul covers all of his bases. He wants to make sure we understand that Christ deserves his position. The first element I want you to notice is Paul's use of different prepositions. Look look what he uses. He actually uses three different prepositions in relation to Christ and his creation of everything. At the very beginning, he says that by him all things were created. There's a footnote in your handout, but there's also probably a footnote if you're using the SV that that could also be the preposition in him all things were created. If you jump to the end of verse 16, it says through him all things were created, for him all things were created. This is a complete picture. In him all things were created, through him all things were created, for him all things were created. That first preposition, in him, it means that it was the sphere in which this happened, the means by which this happened. This happened in Christ. Now, now that might seem like I'm I'm not really sure how important the implication of that is, but, but let me explain this a little bit. Nothing happens apart from Christ. There wasn't an element where, well, Christ is is the king of this dominion. Christ is the creator of this. But who knows? Maybe God gave some creative liberty to some angels. And they did this other thing apart from Christ. And then maybe someone else did this thing over here. And so these things were created in Christ. But maybe we should trust some other people as well. Maybe there's other forces. This is going to come a little bit more, become more important as we continue through Colossians because one of the problems the Colossians have is with a, a desire to believe in some things that are mystical, in the worship of angels. And what, Christ is, what, what Paul is saying is, no, there's nothing that was made apart from Christ. There's not other formulas. Everything was created in Christ. 
but not just created in Christ, created through Christ. He was the agent by which these things happened. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. It's all through Christ. Now, both of those elements, what should the application of those things be? There's nothing else. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more powerful. It's just Jesus. Now, I'm going to just do a quick aside here, spe- speaking specifically. Um, we have a lot of women here that are doing our, uh, are participating in the Bible study. And ne- I think next week you'll be in Hebrews 6. And Hebrews 6 is a, is a little confusing because it says that you need to get past the elementary doctrine of Christ. And yet here I'm saying, don't get past Christ. Okay, well, is, is Hebrew saying one thing and, and Paul is saying something else? No. The problem was that they had limited Christ to just be this one aspect. All they, were, they worried about is repentance in Christ. The only thing that you need is for Christ to save you and that's it. And Paul's saying, no. You, you need to go past this first part that you've accepted. You need to broaden that out. You need to apply this. If everything was created in him and through him, we don't get past him. We need to stay there, especially since everything was created for him. The purpose of creation is for the creator. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen seems obvious, but the implications of that are pretty profound. Why do you exist? What were you made for? How much of our creative energy is used trying to seek and find out what our purpose is? How much of life is, is said, you, you just need to follow your heart, and, and that's where you're going to find fulfillment. That's where you're going to find your purpose. No. It's not a secret. It's right here. What is our purpose? We were created for him. That has an implication. When we think about that we, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, why? How, who gives, what gives him the right to say that that's my purpose? What gives him the right to tell me I have to walk worthy of him? He made me. I'm for him. I belong to him. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. Do you see how comprehensive Paul is being in explaining Christ's work in creation? But then he goes on and to say, well, what exactly did he create? All things. Some things? No. All things. Look at the list. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, All things. When he says all, he means all. Now there's a special consideration for the Colossians that this is addressing, there is an element where this is also addressing the spiritual realm. Where for the Colossians, like I said, there's some element, and we're going to get more into this as we progress through the book, but there's some mystical element 
In 2.18, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Later, he's also going to talk about that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He's talking about spiritual forces. We know that because in Ephesians 6, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a temptation to go into the mystical of the secret things. To think that there are other revelations, there are other ways, there are other formulas that might also work and serve to take us to God. And, and Paul's saying, no. All things, good spirits, bad spirits, all things, angels, demons, all things were created by him. There's not something that's outside of him that can say, here's my own way of doing this. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. How does this, the truth of Christ's work of overcreation impact us? How do we apply this? By humbling ourselves before him. He is God, and the magnitude of his power and work we cannot begin to comprehend. Moreover, anyone who would seek to call us away from him, claiming to have a better way, is lying. There is no one above him. There is no better way. The one who is claiming to have a better formula is creation, not creator. But Christ is creator. Verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul here reemphasizes Christ's position, although this one has more the idea of chronology. He is before. He was there in the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Beginning and the end. No, nothing else can claim, well, I remember before this Jesus showed up, and that's just not how we did things. No, he was in the beginning. And in him, all things hold together. Because the work of Christ is not just as creator, he's also sustainer. Now we might think in looking around life that life seems chaotic, that things are going out of control. And if you read Romans, you know that Christ has subjected creation to a certain level of futility. But still, that is nothing compared to what would happen if Christ did not sustain us. If Christ were not holding all things together, that's it. There's no more anything. It would cease to exist. He holds all things together. If he's the one who sustains, where else can we go? That's what we sang earlier. Where else can we go, O oh Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You are the sustainer of life. You are the creator of life. You are the giver of life. Do you see that the truth that Paul is presenting to us is not just the truth that we need so that we would accept Christ and have life in him. It's also the truth that we need to apply so that we would live life in him. The accepted truth of Christ must be applied if we are to be transformed. He is God. He is the firstborn. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is sovereign. His position is over all creation. So let's move on to Christ's position over reconciliation. In this next section, Paul follows the same format, and he once again gives us Christ's identity. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In the first part, Christ's identity was over everything. 
Now we see a more specific element of Christ's identity in reconciliation in that he is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. There's two elements I want to highlight about that. First, if he is the head, he's the authority. He gets to tell us what to do. That's how the head functions on the body. My foot isn't having command over my head. Even at times when I might step on a Lego that my kids leave out on the floor, I might think that there's control over my foot. But if you know physiology, you still know that it's the brain that's causing me to act. It's his authority. He's the head of the body. But the second element of that is not just his authority. It's his provision. He is the one that sustains us, that gives us life. Paul's going to say this later when he says that in, from whom, in chapter 2, that Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows, grows with a growth that is from God. How? When we hold fast to the head. When we hold fast to the head, we grow with a growth that comes from God. He not only commands us, he also sustains us. It's not just guidance, it's also growth, because he's the head. If Christ is the head, what's the application of that? What's the implication? We can claim to accept that, but if then the way that we're living is doing our own thing, if in this church the only things that we determine is what our own preferences are instead of the principles that the head has given us, that's a problem. We've claimed to accept the truth because we're saying it's all about Christ, but the application of that truth is missing when we say it's all about us and all the things that we want to do. It goes on and says that Christ is the beginning. The idea here is that he is the origin. He's the source. It begins with him. This is similar to what we saw before in regards to creation, but here it's applied to the church. What is he the beginning of? The church. It was established in him, through him, and for him. We see that because of what comes next. What is the title that is given to him? The firstborn of the dead. This is the second time Christ is called the firstborn in our passage. The first time it was of creation. Now it's of the dead. What's this talking about? Again, it's pointing to Christ in relation to the church. Romans 8, 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that we, so what this is saying, we're also supposed to have the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ died, he was the first, died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again. He is the first. He's the first to conquer death, and we through him will also conquer death, but after him. This is what Colossians 1:18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. But look at what Colossians 3 says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's the firstborn of the dead. The only way the church exists is because he's the beginning. It's because he's the firstborn. It's because of the work that he's done. Let's look at his position. He's all of those things. Why? To what end? Well, let's look at the, verse, the end of verse 18. 
that in everything he might be preeminent. To be preeminent is to be first. All of the things that Christ has done, his identity, all of that leads to his preeminence, his position over everything. Now on one hand, he already is preeminent. After all, he is the firstborn of creation. He is over all of creation. And yet, would we look at the relationship between Christ, the creator, and the creation and say that this is right? That everything right now is the way it's meant to be and this is what, what Christ designed and everything is exactly how it is. No, we would say, wait a second, there's an issue in, which the cre- in how the creation is relating to the creator. Not just in the world, here. How often are we really treating Christ as preeminent? How often do we look at our life and say, man, it is so obvious that Christ is preeminent in your life. Is he preeminent? Yes. Is that truth something that we have accepted? Yes. Have we applied it? Have we applied the truth that Christ truly is preeminent? The good news is that he will be. Right now, he already is. That is his position. But at one point, the practice of creation will match the position that we have under him. At one point, all of us truly will treat him as preeminent. Truth we have accepted must be applied. We do not treat Christ as preeminent when all we do is claim to accept the truth and then ignore it. This is not the way we walk, worthy, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is not the way we are fully pleasing to him if we are not treating him as preeminent. We turn to nothing else because nothing else compares to him. We trust no other formula because no other formula truly accomplishes what we were made to do. Trusting in other, any other formula doesn't make him preeminent. It says we do not trust him. We then come to Christ's work. How is it that he is the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead? Because of what he did. This is what leads to him being totally in the position of preeminence. The work of Christ was not just in creation. He did not just make us and leave us. He came and took on flesh. It's also found in his work of reconciliation. Paul once again points to Christ's deity, but he does it by highlighting a work of Christ. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When we talk about the fullness of God being pleased to dwell in Christ, we're talking about the incarnation. This is where Christ became man, fully God, fully man. Colossians 2, 9 is very similar to this verse because it says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's two elements for us to observe. The first element is the fullness of God. All of God. Jesus isn't just part God. That needed to be the case. Because in John 1.16 it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We don't get the blessings, everything we saw last week, all of the elements of being overwhelmed by grace, that doesn't happen if Jesus is a demigod. He doesn't get to fulfill what needs to be fulfilled. He doesn't get to redeem us and give us forgiveness of sins if he is just 
part God. In him, the fullness of God was what? Pleased to dwell. This demonstrates the worthiness of Christ, his perfection. If Christ were just a man who was elevated, the fullness of God would not be pleased to dwell because there would have been sin. But Christ was the Son of God, and in his perfect life, God was pleased to dwell. There was no conflict between being God and man. Because he was perfect, there wasn't an issue with him being a holy God. That was a pleased to dwell. This is where Matthew 3.17, when Jesus is baptized, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So we see Christ's work in the incarnation, but Christ didn't just come for a holiday. He wasn't just coming down and saying, you know what? Let me see what it's like to be a human. Let me figure things out. Let me just observe things here. What did he come for? He came for the work of reconciliation. See, see this is the big meta-narrative of Scripture. That God had a plan from before time began. That all of this had a goal. All of it was looking forward. And what was it looking forward to? Christ. The work that he was going to do. How all of this was going to fit together. How all of this, all of it, and when I'm saying all, like Paul, I'm saying all, all of this would serve to glorify God. And so we see that the purpose is ultimate reconciliation. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now some of you while reading that might have a question that's starting to come up in your mind about, um, is this, what is this saying? All things? are reconciled to himself? Mm, this, this is kind of putting up my antennae of, of is this universalism? Is this saying that, that what ultimately everyone is saved? And so really it's kind of counterintuitive because if in the end everyone's saved, what's the point of accepting the truth and applying it because what difference does it make? And at, at face value, when you read that, I understand why that would be the question of, wait, how is it that through him he reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven? So w what is Paul saying? Well, the first thing we need to understand is what he is not saying. Paul is not saying that ultimately everyone is saved. This is a hard but very important Truth, theologically, that we must come to terms with. The Bible is very clear that there is judgment. Psalm 1, 5 and 6 says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Thessalonians, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1 is even more clear when it says this, Since indeed God consider, considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
Don't understand here when he's saying that all things will be reconciled, that he's saying we're all going to go to heaven. In the end, it's all going to work out in that way. In the end, it does all work out. But part of working it out means that some are condemned to hell. He's not, so if he's not saying universal soul salvation, then what is he saying? We might be tempted to qualify the word all here and say, well, no, it was all in the first part of the passage, but this all is limited. This is just about the church. That's not the case because right after that, he says in heaven and on earth. Throughout this whole passage, Paul has been really trying to make the point, all means all. So then our difficulty with is how can all be reconciled? Well, we need to understand what reconciled is. To be reconciled is to be in the right position under God. See, right now, Christ's position is over everything, and yet, do we hold the right position? Does the world at large have the right position under its creator? It doesn't. There's a war going on. There is a spiritual battle. There is a rebellion. There is a battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between darkness and light. But does that battle ultimately end? When Christ said that he is the prince of peace, does there ultimately come a point where there is peace? One of the hard things for us to realize is that when we talk about peace and not because we've come to terms and said, okay, let's just make a truce. There is no truce between good and evil. God isn't going to just make a pact, a treaty with Satan and said, you just stay in your area and then we'll make peace that way. No, there is peace because he conquers. It's the end. But the way in which that happens, which the peace comes, there's two ways. Some of it happens through surrender. When an invading force comes in, although it's not the invading force, it's really the force that is coming back to take back what it's th- is theirs. When that force comes in, you have a choice. Will you surrender willfully and say, I will follow, I will place myself under you because that is my right position, or will you be forced into that position? Will you be conquered? Philippians 2, 8 through 11 says this, And being found in human form, this is Christ, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the heaven. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the end, will all things be reconciled? Will all things be brought back under the position, under the full authority of Christ? Yes. And we talked a little bit about position earlier. He's the head of what? The body. That is one of the blessed positions that we can have. We can be under his authority by being part of the body. But there is another way that we can be under his authority, which would be to be enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says this, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That process, that reconciliation, that's going to happen. His authority will be absolute. Now, let me just just do a a, a warning here. There's this 
false idea about hell. And we don't, I, I don't spend a ton of time talking about hell every week unless it's coming up in the passage. But, but there's an element where we think about hell and say, no, you know what? I can do whatever I want here on earth. And then when I get to hell, there's going to be no restrictions. Then I can really do whatever I want. That is not how it's going to be. You will be under his total authority. You can bow now. You can bend the knee now, willfully submitting to him by accepting the truth, applying the truth, or your knees will be broken and you will be forced to kneel and claim that he is God and confess to his glory. The end result, though, is that he will be glorified. But how does all of this happen? Because he is making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, we might look at that and we say, well, wait a second. How is it the peace through the blood of his cross? And that includes salvation. And that's the part that we would think of naturally. And that is the part that we have experienced. But there's a different side to that. See, all, ultimately, everything comes back to the cross. What is it that saves us? The blood of the cross. When we place our faith in Jesus, the blood of the cross saves us. But here's the other question. What is it that ultimately condemns us? The blood of the cross. See, if his bloods are on our hands because it washes us, that is a blessing in which we are in the right position under him willfully. But if his blood is on our hands because of our sin, it condemns us. Well, a long time ago, we talked about this. Are we under guilt or are we under grace? See, all of this comes back to this truth of who Jesus is. This is what he has done. It's the incarnation. He came and he came to reconcile. But how we are reconciled to him, look, I, I just want to beg you, if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not accepted the truth of who Christ is, ultimately you will submit to God. But I'm telling you, it is so much better to submit to him now by repenting and placing your faith in Jesus, to understand that he is the creator, he is holy, that we are sinners, that he has come to reconcile. Our passage next week is going to talk about that specific reconciliation of us as believers. We were dead, but now we have life in him. That is the thing that you should have. But it's only possible if you place your faith in him, if you accept the truth, and then go on to apply that truth. So here's the question. How far has the truth of Jesus gotten in your life? In that process of truth, have you reached the point that you've accepted it. If you haven't, if you've still denied it, you will eventually accept it. But do so in this lifetime. But if you have accepted it, don't stop there. You need to go on and progress into applying it. Don't stall out. The truth of who Jesus is isn't just a matter of salvation, but also sanctification. We aren't just meant to accept the truth of who Jesus is. We are supposed to apply it. Are we living according to the truth of who Jesus is? Are we applying the truth of his position over all creation? Are we applying that he is God, that he is the firstborn of creation, that he is the creator and sustainer of all things? Are we applying the truth of his position in reconciliation? Are we applying that he is the head of the body, that he is our beginning, that he is the firstborn of the dead? Are we living in a way that demonstrates that he is preeminent over everything, especially over our own lives? Are we applying the truth of his work that he will reconcile all things, that he is making peace through the blood of his cross? 
All of these things are not just truths to accept. These are truths to apply. As the worship team comes up, we're going to continue through Colossians, and we're, we're going to be encouraged to live for Christ but the foundation for that command, command is found here in the truth of who Jesus is. We don't get past Jesus. We need to understand who Christ is so that we would trust that formula, that we would not go beyond that. We would accept the truth and that we would apply the truth. The accepted truth of Christ must be applied if we are to be transformed. And brothers and sisters, that is something that we must do if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him.